You're listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. So a lot of the truth of the matter is physicians probably make less money than you think they do and they're probably much unhappier than you would think and don't, you know, they don't, uh, a lot of them are not in enviable positions, especially with all these mergers and acquisitions going on. A lot of them are finding that their contracts are getting, you know, they signed the initial contract two years, not with a non-compete, two years later it comes up again. I'm Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where I chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Sycamore's podcast. It's uh, Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and uh, you are... uh, on the Branch Out podcast, which is uh, a a podcast that we host, it's been a little bit since I've uh, uploaded a, or recorded an episode. Although we've we've tried to keep the past episodes rolling out, and um, and I'm excited about our guest today. We've got Dr. Daniel Paul, who's a, a board certified orthopedic surgeon, and he also owns and operates um, his own Easy Orthopedics uh, practice in Colorado Springs, um, which is a DPC. Um, or at least it's a it's a more of a free market kind of approach, I, I believe, to uh, to um, to orthopedics. So we're going to learn all about that. Um, he's also the author of a book. So you got into medical school. Now what? A guide for preparing for the next four years. So I'm excited to hear about all of this stuff. Um, and just as an intro uh, to to the podcast, if you're new to the podcast, is your first time joining us? Welcome. Um, this is really about, uh, for us, it's really about inspiring physicians to consider branching out. Um, we, we believe at Sycamore that a healthcare system with more autonomous physicians, with more physicians who have, um, who have gr- greater control over their, themselves, their career, their well-being, their lifestyle, their, their, um, their income uh, is going to be a better healthcare system. We want we want physicians to have independence and autonomy. We think that'll be a better thing for healthcare in America. So we're all about uh, bringing uh, doctors on, like Dr. Paul, who have branched out from kind of the norm, the normal kind of nine to five standard, you know, um, approach to uh, to medicine, depending on their specialty, and have tried something new, um, and so. Um, that's why we're doing this, and hopefully you're here uh, because that's something you're interested in. So I will. Uh, that's enough by way of introduction. Um, Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us. Hey, Larson. Uh, thanks for having me. Just one thing I kind of want to clarify is that uh, I'm actually yeah. not board certified. I would be called board eligible. Okay. I um, got it. I passed. Oh, sure. I passed part. I just don't want the ABOS coming after me. I passed part one of my exam. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever take part two because they want me to be part of a hospital system and I refuse to do it. So <laughs> that may Got be it. not every, anything I'll ever be able to say about myself. But um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thanks for setting the record straight. Um, and that's, uh, that's, a good, that's, a good, uh, that's a good point. And I'm sure that's a good kind of launching off point as well for the conversation. So, so you are a, an orthopedic surgeon and um, that was your – that was your training. I'd love to maybe, I know there's a lot of stuff that I want to dive into here, but I'd love to just kind of 
back up before we really dive into the details and where you're at today. And just, you know, can you take me back to, to, you know, younger Dr. Paul, uh, pre doctor, pre medical school, what was your, um, when was it that you thought, Hey, I I think I want to pursue a career in, in medicine. So, uh, I come from a whole family of engineers, like on both sides of the family. So like lots of engineering in my family, no doctors in my family. And when I was 14, I had a really bad skiing accident where I broke both my legs and my right arm. And I went from like being almost dead to being able to walk again through kind of the miracle of modern orthopedics at the time, which was in 99. Wow. And, uh, so like that kind of turned me onto it. I'm like, this is pretty cool. Like I went from you know, really debilitated to like running track in high school, essentially, because yeah. it happened when I was in eighth grade. That's amazing. And uh, that's what kind of turned me on to it. And that's kind of when I just started putting my head down and I'm like, I'm going to do it. And like that, that's yeah. kind of the origin story of like why orthopedics, why medicine. So it's not like I went to medical sure. school and said, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I basically went to medical school saying I want to go into orthopedics and I don't want to go into anything else. That's awesome. I feel like, uh, I feel like it is totally a miracle. I mean, when you, I'm trying to remember, I think I read this in a Nassim Taleb book, but he was talking about how, or no, I think it was in risky medicine. Anyway, it was, it was, it was this, uh, this idea that, um, most of the gains in, in, in the mortality rate, uh, that have been brought about by modern science can really be attributed to, to germ, you know, basically germ theory kind of stuff, um, so, you know, sort of the accidental discovery of, 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 uh, of antibiotics, um, and, and then, uh, uh, and then life-saving surgeries, you know, things like broken arms, broken legs. I mean, these are the kinds of things that in, uh, in different times, pre modern medicine, these are the kinds of things that would, that would frequently, you know, get worse and worse and turn into gangrene and get infected and, and, uh, and be debilitating. So anyway, I, I think it's cool. Um, I think it's cool for you to be in a, in a, in a position. We work a lot with emergency physicians who are doing some of those, you know, doing also those kind of major life-saving things. Um, but it must be satisfying to be in a practice, a specialty where you see really tangible results from the work you're doing. Yeah, I mean, people come to you because they have a problem and they want it to get, or they're usually in pain and they want it to get sorted out. So they're usually pretty motivated yeah. to get better in most cases, as opposed to, let's say, primary care, like, hey, your blood pressure is high, like, hey, you got diabetes, and they're right. like, I feel fine. Right. So you're not really right. fighting that quite so much. It's like, my shoulders hurt. And it's a kind of a different story where it's like, well, you could live with shoulder pain. That's not going to, you know, cause premature sure. death. Uh, but right. you don't like it. So you're here seeing me and, uh, we'll try to work that out together. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So, okay. So you knew from that point forward, I want to do this. This is awesome. Um, and, uh, and so w- would you say that, you know, I think this is something, well, l- let me ask this question. Is this something I always like to try to ask? Um, what, as you think about it, um, in your in your view, kind of philosophically, perhaps, what is what is a physician like? What is a physician's calling? What is their mission? What is their job? What's the job of a physician? Physician. I think the job of a physician is basically centered around the patient. Your job is to take a patient who has some issue, medically speaking, and mm-hmm. help them get better mm-hmm. to the best of your ability without hurting them. I think that yeah. I think that simple terms. That's basically what you're doing. 
Um, yeah. That's not necessarily what people are doing, but that's, you know, what I think it is at its core. Someone comes to you because yeah. they're sick, whether they, you know, have a sore throat or a broken leg or cancer, your job is to help them get better to the best of your ability. And if you can't, then to stop doing things. Yep. Yep. That's great. That's a great definition. Uh, and, and I always, I always find that the answer to that question to be, um, interesting. Cause I, I do think that there's, there's quite a lot of, um, you would think it's a fairly straightforward question, but there's quite a lot of, um, variety in the kinds of answers we get. Um, so when you think about your own, um, path to medicine, do you feel like it's something you, do you, do you feel like it's a calling? Like, do you feel like it's something that you're sort of built to do and this is what you're meant to do? Well, that's initially, yeah, I did feel that way. I said, like, this is kind of what yeah. I've, I thought this is what I was meant to do. I had this accident that was mm-hmm. really bad and I survived. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, this is kind of what I was meant to do. So that was definitely what started the journey, you know, and before you get yeah. into medical training or anything like that, I and mean, that is the journey, you know, that is like, yeah. I'm going for this. This is what I want to do. Um, yeah. And so that certainly was the the motivating or, you know, part of the origin of it. Once you actually yeah. get in and things are different than maybe what you thought they were when you were 14 years old, you start to kind of think about things a little differently. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, yeah, I mean, I think most people who go to medical school or become physicians or providers or healers in some sort um, have something similar like a calling. I mean, you occasionally get people yep. who want to do it for the status, but I mean, there's certainly easier sure. ways to get status and make money than do medicine. For sure. Yeah, I, and and I tend to agree with you on that point. I I think um I think there are people, you know, I I talk a lot about physician burnout and and moral injury that physicians have. You know, they 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 get into healthcare for altruistic reasons, something they feel like, man, I want to make the world a better place. I want to help people. They get into it and they start feeling um like this isn't what I signed up for and um and I think on top of it, um, they're not getting a lot of sympathy. You know, I think I think the way our society views physicians is, well, you guys make a lot of money, so we don't necessarily need to like honor you or respect you the way that you know the way that it, throughout history we've always regarded physicians to 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 be worthy of of a certain level of respect and honor because of the calling that they're that they're pursuing. Um, do you see that? Do you see that kind of dynamic in, in your career? Yeah. I mean, we're an easy, you know, we're an easy target in that sort of sense where it's like, people think that we're just yeah. like, you know, we're just making buttloads of money and we're just like yeah. living in gigantic houses and like things are good. And like, we don't care, you know, like only spending five minutes and charge like a million dollars for like a shot or something. And, uh, yeah. So I, it's kind of not sort of the reality of the situation. I mean, the reality yeah. is, is that you really, you really work very hard all throughout medical training. And then you get into a situation where now you're, you're working as an attending and you do get compensated decently well. I mean, not as good as you, they did in the nineties or eighties or before that. Um, sure. whether that's appropriate or not, I don't know. Um, sure. But, you know, the physicians now aren't super happy because, you know, you want to take care and do a good job for people. And I think that's a time-based thing. Like, you, you know, it's like someone asking you to paint a wall in 10 minutes. Like, you can do it. Is it going to be good? Yep. Like, probably not. And I think that's what we're seeing in medicine right. now where insurance is driving these high-volume models. So, basically, you're, yep. forced, yep. you're forced into seeing people in short intervals and you can't, 
you have to skip over things. You can't. I mean, if a patient has one problem, like, and they're and and they're a good historian, and they 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 know about the problem already, you can get away with it. But man, yep. someone's got a few problems, or they're a bad historian, or there's some level of complexity. Those people just get handled yep. terribly. But anyways, you're not able to yep. do the job that you want to do. And I think that just causes a lot of moral injury or, the, you know, the other term that is more of a victim-blaming term is burnout. So a lot mm-hmm. – the truth of the matter is physicians probably make less money than you think they do and they're probably much unhappier than you would think and don't – you know, they don't um, – a lot of them are not in enviable positions, especially with all these right. mergers and acquisitions going on. A lot of them are finding that their contracts are getting – you know, they signed the initial contract two years – not with a non-compete, two years later it comes up again. And, uh, mm-hmm. they, uh, get a worse contract and they end up moving every like four or five years. So like these jobs aren't even stable. Oh. So I think the days yeah. of like, you know, the physician, you know, taking Wednesdays off for golf and like making like a million dollars a year and like just having like the life are, I mean, unless, it, for most all physicians are, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think, I think what's happened, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that have happened and we can dive into that, but, but at a, at a high level, you know, the, the, the dynamic has changed dramatically in, in that, you know, physicians have gone from being, you know, sort of the drivers of healthcare, the drivers of practice, the practice of medicine to, it's kind of become, and, and the administration of a hospital, um, or administration of a practice really being really serving the physicians, you know, serving to empower, enable, assist, uh, facilitate the physician. It's kind of the, the, the whole thing's been flipped on its head. It's kind of the tail wagging the dog now. So, so now the physician seems to be kind of low man on the totem pole. Um, they're, they're sort of the grunt labor and, and it's the hospital the administration, the corporation, whoever it is, that's really calling the shots, um, which is a scary, which, which is a scary thing. You know, I mean, that's a scary thing from a patient standpoint to think, um, who's, who is it that's driving, um, the, the decisions that are being made about my healthcare? You know, is it, is it a, is it a physician who's taken the Hippocratic oath, uh, has gone through all this training or is it an executive? Yeah, I think, I, I think there's, yeah, I certainly agree with you. Um, I mean, the point – physicians have become commoditized, right? Like the days yeah. of having your own small private practice – I mean, I do, but I'm doing something different – are basically gone. Yeah. And, and what happened yeah. is an insurance companies kind of drove that in the sense that this deal is supposed to be between insurance companies and physicians. Like, hey, take a little cut on your prices and we'll send you a lot of patients. Sure. And physicians say, okay, that's reasonable. And then what ends up happening sure. is insurance companies also say – or they implicitly do – Hey, by the way, we're not going to pay you unless you do all these crazy things. So like documentation, yeah. standing on one leg, so to speak. I mean, that standing on one leg sounds yeah. funny, but there's things that aren't that far away from that. So, yeah. you know, um, we're only one step away from Medicare requiring everyone to document while standing on their left leg. And docs would do it. They would just do it. It would happen immediately. That's the only sort of systemic changes totally. you get in hospital reimbursement totally. related um, that happen yeah. quickly. But anyway, so that basically yeah. drove overhead up to the moon because now you need all these coders and billers and prior off and made it Im- very difficult to run your own private practice. Combine that with uh, reimbursement cuts that, you know, always kind of the reimbursement always goes down 
you know, year after year, it makes it running your own business unsustainable when you can't control your overhead and you can't control what you charge. So because of that, the solo provider's gone, small practices are gone. And really what you're seeing is the only thing left, there's these massive groups, even in the world of orthopedics, or hospital-owned practices. So it's like pick your poison. So when these yeah. hospitals acquire groups, um, you know, they see you as a commodity. They want you to do certain things, even if that's not yeah. really what you want to do. And they don't explicitly tell you to do them, but they make it very difficult to do otherwise. An example is, yeah. say you're a primary care doctor referring <laughs> to another rheumatologist in town who you've worked with for 15 years and you know to be excellent. Well, now the hospital yeah. buys your practice. You can't really refer there. That would, I mean, legally you can, but they make it very difficult for you to send referrals outside of the system. And uh, you'll have meetings about it if you do. Well, why aren't you sending to our rheumatologist? So they really take away all your autonomy. And then on the other end, yeah. so like they're, they're really driving decisions. And then on the other hand, there's insurance companies denying all sorts of necessary things and giving you a hard time. So who's driving the care? It's the hospital sure. systems and insurance companies. Your doc is doing the yeah. best they can while being stuck in the middle to do what's best for you. But they're getting dragged apart and their, their job is made extremely difficult by those two institutions. And uh, I think totally. that's where the burnout sort of generates from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I say this on almost every episode, but this idea that, you know, this false dichotomy that, that you either have socialized medicine or you have or you have, uh, you know, uh, free market medicine, which is what we have today is 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 a totally false dichotomy because we what we have is anything but a free market system, um, you know, in a free market system. You'd have individual physician owners who would have control over how they practice and who they refer to and what procedures they perform and don't perform. I think uh, I think COVID actually was this was this kind of unveiling I think for a lot of folks of of just how, like you said, you know, if insurance companies told physicians that they had to document standing on one leg they would all comply immediately. Um, and we saw this incredible um, uniformity of, of thought and, and, um, and care and uh, conformity to what the government was, was, was pushing um, with, with very, very little, you know, you've got these men and women of science, these physicians who are supposed to be skeptical, skeptical and, and, um, and free thinkers and evidence based and 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 weirdly all in sync everybody was saying the exact same thing you know about about everything right and and you know it's just like it's just, it, it, for for a lot of us it sort of raised eyebrows about well wait a second you know it's like this is a new thing isn't it aren't, aren't there isn't there room for people to be thinking and and having divergent opinions and things like that um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I think that sort of was maybe a, an aha moment for some of us who are not as close, you know, not, not behind the scenes the way that you, you are. Um, and, and then we're seeing it now. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who runs a, a primary care practice and they were saying, well, you know, um, insurance has noticed that we have too many patients um that are behind on their vaccination schedules and they've now said they're going to start cutting our reimbursement um if we don't get that percentage up um and so um anyway just just another example of of a the way that 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 payers again not not 
not people who have taken the Hippocratic Oath, not not people who have been through medical school and are treating patients, but payers who are in some corporate office somewhere are telling physicians how they must treat their patients or else they won't get paid. Yeah, I mean, anytime you know you have uh, quality metrics tied to payment, you get game. You get, people yeah. start gaming the system, so it actually totally. doesn't lead to quality improvement. So, for instance, if you start penalizing surgeons for infections, what'll happen is that um, some surgeons won't take on the patients that they think are going to get infected. So that keeps their infection yeah. rate down, and their quality metric is higher. And they get paid. So anytime you start, to, like ACOs, for example, I think are yeah. a terrible idea. Any time you start, yeah. time you start try, uh, tying quality metrics into payment, you, people are going to game it and you won't actually get the result. Oh. And then what's worth is now you have the administrative overhead burden of collecting all this data. So I think that's a pretty, totally. those are pretty wrong way to go. Um, quality metrics can be good if you're looking for just quality improvement sure. without tied to reimbursement. So Let's say you have a lot of infections in the ICU and you want to know like, okay, where are these infections coming from? And you start looking into sure. things and then you can get some really improvement. But if you're tying it to reimbursements, uh, I think that, you know, you're going to have uh, a problem. Go, yep. Going back to what you said before, you know, I think with a doc, you yep. have to be careful not to, I mean, you need to be skeptic and look at the data, but you also need to not let your own ego and narcissism get in the way. And uh, totally. I think we, we do see that sometimes where someone's like, well, this is what everyone else is saying, but they don't know the secret. Only I know what's real, you know? So you have to really right, temper, right. you have to really, I always am careful of people who are saying things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think skepticism is important, um, but you also need to make sure that you're not going off the other end with just large ego and narcissism and thinking that you totally. found this solution that nobody else has found. I mean, that can't happen, totally. but only, and when those things truly do happen, you have an extremely skeptical person being like, Am I, I got to be wrong. I got to be wrong. I got to be wrong. Oh, my God, I'm right. right. As right. opposed to right. I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. So I always just kind of keep that in mind, you know, looking, you know, trying, yeah. trying to avoid demagogues and people who supposedly have the answers to everything there is to know in medicine because it's complicated. And there's many, 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 many totally. things we don't know. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and I'm sure this is the case in your, in your specialty, but, but I think even you zoom out, you know, to, to things like chronic health issues, cancer, you know, um, diabetes, obesity, you know, the heart disease, all the big stuff, you know, big killers, you know, frankly, um, you know, our, our bodies are so incredibly complex and, uh, you, you know, they're, they're making all these discover discoveries in in the area of like precision medicine and, and, you know, genomics. And, and I mean, there's, it, there's no doubt that, um, I mean, what, what, what physicians are trying to do is to deal with the N of one, you know, that's standing in front of them and, and, um, and assess that particular person's situation. And, and I think, um, I think one of the problems with kind of the centralized um, approach is that uh, is that insurance companies, the payers, uh, government, uh, th- they're trying to look at it from a from a statistical, um, you know, a, a statistic trying to trying to put everyone into a box. Like you're talking about, like like you're supposed to treat every patient that walks in the door that you think you can make better, right? I mean that when you, when you defined the role of a physician earlier, that was kind of how you defined it. Um, but like you said, if you tie reimbursement to quality metrics and infection rates, then all of a sudden you're saying, well, I don't, I'm not going to be a physician now, uh, in the way that I know I'm supposed to be because this, this 
particular person has a higher risk of infection, I don't want to mess up my reimbursement. And that's, that's a, and I, and I think that's the, um, the arrogance probably the, and this, this mistake that, that is repeated constantly of just the unintended consequences of, of creating incentives. You know, you, you, you think you're, you're designing an, a better uh, model and, and uh, invariably you end up, you end up incentivizing people to game the system in a way that, that has these unintended consequences. Yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, even with Obamacare, they introduced the 80-20 rule for, for those who aren't familiar. That basically says an insurance company has to pay every 80% of every dollar it gets towards healthcare expenditures, meaning they get to keep 20. Sounds like a good thing, right? You're kind of saying, hey, don't keep so much yeah. money. But ends up what happening is that you say, well, well, if we get to keep 80%, we're going to um, pay more money for things. Uh, so it's a yep. bigger pie, so we get to keep more. And then, so, you know, so it leads to, leads yeah. to the worst, worst result where now insurance companies are incentivized to weirdly pay more for things. Pay more. Um, yeah. So <laughs> you got to be really careful with that stuff. I mean, I think that, yeah. I mean, that the practice of medicine is very nuanced and complicated, um, but the yeah. delivery really shouldn't be. I think that if right. you ultimately leave a physician to their own devices, seeing a patient, they'll, yeah. they'll do the best job they can. Most physicians will. Totally. Um, totally. you start adding in all this other stuff, it, it can get derailed into the, you have the system we have now where it's like, right. you know, they're seeing 50 people a day. You get only minutes with a doctor. They're running through your physical exam. Sometimes you even have the fabled no touch visit. Um, you know, no questions. Sure. What are one questions answered? All our questions are ignored. You know, maybe they're seeing a physician expend, extender when they were going to see the doc initially. And look, physician yeah. extenders can be really good, but Sometimes patients yeah. don't like it when they think they're seeing the doc and then they're not. Um, totally. So, I mean, you know, it, it creates, again, this high volume mill practice and like doctors don't like right. it. Patients don't like right. it. The people who like it right. are all the people benefiting off the status quo right now, which is mainly hospital systems right. and insurance companies, you know, pharmaceuticals right. and right. to a lesser extent devices. Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, when, when you talked about, um, the, the calling of a, of a physician or, or the uh, mission of a physician, I mean, it, it, there's nothing in there about high volume, high productivity, efficiency, and, and there shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, um, this is another thing I've mentioned on several podcasts, but, but the, the ancient definition of a, of a, of the, in the ancient world, there were only three, phys, uh, professions and they were, they were, you know, Jobs, you know, they, they weren't jobs; they were professions. You know, job is is work. Professions are this separate category, and you've got you've got uh, legal, medical, and and religious. And, you know, you've got you know, basically pastors, lawyers, and physicians. And the idea is that these these three profession professions uh, involve professing uh, some truth, uh, some ultimate truth that's that has major consequences. So you don't want to, you don't want to judge or a lawyer who is motivated by profit. You want them to be motivated by the truth of the situation, right? The, the you want to maintain this integrity of the situation. Same is true with, with clergy, with religious people. You don't want them motivated by profit. You want them motivated by, by telling you the truth about, about what they believe your ultimate, you know, eternal destiny is. And the same is true with a physician. You don't want a physician who's motivated, uh, by, by profit, you, you want them to be motivated by 
caring for you and, and helping you get well. Um, and so in the ancient world, you had an honorarium, you know, this idea of we are going to honor these folks. We're going to set them on a, on kind of a pedestal. We're also going to try to you know, separate them from profit motive. Um, and we're now in a place where, you know, I, I would say we're, we're so far from that, 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 that I think the shortest putt, the fastest way to get back home to a, something that's more reasonable and healthy is, is just to let physicians be independent and do their own thing. And, and yeah, it's, they've got to keep the lights on, but, um, but the costs are so absurd right now, um, that, that, uh, you should be able to, if you, if you cut out all the overhead and all the, the coders and administration and everything you talked about earlier, uh, you should be able to, to carve out a, a living without, without, uh, all of that. So, so maybe that, that would be a good transition, uh, um, Dr. Paul, to, to, to get into what, what, what direction you're going now with your career. What are you, what are you doing? What have you, t- tell us about easy orthopedics and, and kind of your, your approach to, uh, to practice now. Sure. So I, I think that, uh, to, to transition over, uh, from your point is yeah. that, uh, you're not going to be able to fix the system. You're just not going to be able to fix yeah. it. It's unfixable because right. the powers that are in charge of it are making so much freaking money off of it that yeah, they have whole sure. lobbying arms. Like you're not going to, you can't fight that. Not at least not in their own turf and in their own game. So yeah. what physicians have That's done right. to get their independence back is just gone into direct care where they say no insurance, no hospitals. I'm keeping all that out. You know, you ultimately yeah. work who, for who pays you. And they're like, I work for my patients. That's who's paying me. That's who I'm trying to do the best job for. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think uh, you're right. Uh, yeah. um, so with EC orthopedics, so there's direct primary care was pretty pretty well established at this point, and I think that's because yeah. family medicine physicians hit the pain point just so much earlier than everybody else. You know, they were pushed. You know, sense. because they were the hospitals make money when they refer out, so they're pushed to just refer a lot to see a lot, um, and they hit this pain point so much earlier that they were kind of forced to figure something out, and they figured out direct primary care. Mm-hmm. And over the past 10 years, plus minus, um, it's really become an established way of doing things uh, for a certain select group. Still small. But um, yep. that, for me, I'm trying to figure out what direct specialty care looks like. Um, you could also call it direct orthopedic care, uh, but then you might get a cease and desist by a company with the same name from the great state of Texas. So. I'll avoid calling it. You can ask me how I know about that, uh, but you, I'll avoid calling it direct orthopedic care. I'll say it's direct specialty care. And so there's a number of specialists who are sort of figuring out like, how do I do this for my specialty? Like, how does it look for orthopedics? How does it look for rheumatology? Like, how does it look for cardiology? And that's sort of where I am. I'm, I'm pioneering it for orthopedics. As far as I know, I mean, you have some cash-based surgery centers but I don't yeah. think there's many orthopedic docs, or at least none that I know that like only do cash or if they do, they're like maybe the guy in Chicago who does like the celebrities knees and hips and stuff like that. But you know, this is kind of a yeah. grounds up cash practice. So it's, yeah. it's a lot of figuring it out. Like what does it look like for orthopedics? What's the role of the orthopedic surgeon, you know, working with direct primary care docs. So I started mm-hmm. it about three years ago. In my case, I started at mobile. Um, and I just used to do a lot of house calls. I still do some. And what I found is that I start seeing people at other people's offices. So they say, hey, I got this person in here. 
um, a direct primary care doctor, let's say a chiropractor or someone else in the cash world, like, can you see him in my office? And I would say, sure. So I'd roll over there and I'd see them. And, uh, you know, instead of charging membership, I would just charge like a one-time fee. I'll cast it, splint, sure. uh, the occasional cash-based surgery. Um, so I've really been uh, navigating that space. So like, again, mm. I don't take any insurances. I don't work for any hospital systems. And again, that's probably why I'll never sit for part two of my boards because they won't let me sit unless mm. I'm attached to a hospital system. And I don't want, I don't want to do it, you know, cause they ultimately mm. control you. And, um, yeah. And it's just, can you, hmm? yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to, this is, this is beside the point, but I'm curious if you can, can you credential at a, you know, get privileges, as like a a PRN locum tenens surgeon, and and that sort of satisfy the the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery's requirements to be attached, or or is it is it stronger than that? Uh, the board the so for those that don't know, a, lo- a lot of board special special certifications. Most of the time, you take a test after you graduate residency, or or whenever you take right. it, and that would make you board certified. So I've done that. The second part is they want you to take an oral exam. In the world of orthopedics, they want you to take this oral exam. Uh, but I believe they require you, you have to be practicing at a single place for over a year. So I don't think locums would work. Mm. And you have to be on mm. hospital staff. Um, and there's a bunch of other requirements. You need to get the head of anesthesia and the head of nursing and all sorts of things to sign off. And I may be mm. slightly off about those. But, um, hmm, and then like, even after you certify, like you have to keep those things. Otherwise they won't let you maintain your certification. So I'm not really interested. Right. It's not a really good fit for me. Uh, I don't, you know, yeah, it makes sense. So I've, I've avoided doing I've got it. Some, I've got some friends up in Idaho who are starting a, uh, a cash pay, um, 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 a cash pay practice up in Idaho. Um, sorry, a surgical practice, surgery center. We, uh, we actually went together out to, um, to Keith Smith's place in, in Texas, uh, or excuse me, in Oklahoma. And, um, and we're pretty inspired. So they, they're starting it out there, but I, I saw them, I saw, um, them, Matt, uh, talking about, um, about a new, uh, a new board certification that's 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 coming. Does that does that ring a bell? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's other boards besides the ABMS. You know that I probably could do if I wanted to. I'll be honest. I just yeah. I just don't think it really adds. Yeah, I, don't really I don't think it adds too much, and I just don't want to waste, sure. waste my time with it. But um, you know, yeah. The, ultimately, the people that most care about board certification are are uh, insurance companies and hospital systems, and I don't work with either of them. There is a caveat though. Like, let's yeah. say you're getting plastic surgery done, you will have people doing plastic surgery that are not plastic surgeons. So, like, the board certification there will really be like, yes, this person is a plastic surgeon, and they went through plastic right, surgery right. training. And I've done the same thing with orthopedics, but you know, right. so th- there are some caveats to it. Um, but I think it's kind of outlived its usefulness, to be honest with you. But anyways, you know, so that's just my personal story with it. I'm sure people would disagree. Yeah. Well, so so it. it what what's the um how do you wh- where do you do your procedures like are you are you partnering with surgery centers uh in the area yeah there's a procedure room I'll use for smaller stuff and a surgery center for larger stuff and these are kind of independent centers so oh you know when I do things cool. there that's where I'll do it I'll say though with this model you're not doing as much surgery as you normally would be because you're not incentivized yeah. to do it you're getting a lot of cash pay people uh people with high deductibles they really don't want surgery so they're doing whatever they can to avoid it. Um, yeah. so what, you know, I really only recommend it when it's absolutely necessary 
or the right. or it, it's like or let's say like a cyst removal or something where it's elective and somebody wants it. But sure. it, the cash pay world of orthopedic surgery is kind of strange in that way. It's uh, especially when you get to trauma. Because, I mean, I'll see stuff where I'm like, you know, you really should get this ulnar fracture fixed. It's displaced. They're like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm just going to heal it. Hmm. I'm like, okay. Like, you know, there's a, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a whole sort of different world. Yeah. yeah. Figuring that out. And then also what I'm kind of exploring now is like, how do I, how do I work best with DPC docs, right? Like, how, how, yeah. how is the yeah. direct orthopedic, you know, specialty? Like, where does that fit in? Because a, a direct primary care doctor is different. Uh, their function is different than like a regular uh, primary care doctor in the system, right? They've redefined those sure. roles. So I think what you see is a lot of in-system stuff. Primary care docs will just refer out for everything under the sun. They won't even look at it. They'll be like, I don't care. Go see the ortho. They'll refer, refer, refer. And I think on direct yep. primary care, you kind of see the other side of the spectrum where some of them will be like, no, I'm not referring you out for every anything. I'm going to take care of all this musculoskeletal yeah. stuff, which is sometimes very appropriate. Right. Um, sometimes not. So, like, I'm kind of finding right. how do I navigate that where, like, hey, yeah, you can take that. That's something advising the direct primary care docs. You can take care of that. No problem. Like, mm, this is something that I would feel a little uncomfortable with as an orthodox. So you probably want to refer mm-hmm. to me rather than just sit on right. it. So that's kind of a new, right. like, other side of the coin that I'm exploring at the moment. Yeah. Like, how do we bridge that gap? Because obviously they don't want to refer to me right. for everything. And there's a lot of things they can take care of. But, um, you right. know, musculoskeletal care is all I know. That's all I trained in. Um, and they trained in they right. trained in everything, so they're certainly competent in certain areas of it. But there's there's sure. a lot of nuances sure. that I think go underappreciated. Yeah, for sure. I, I that totally makes sense. Um, and and it's interesting that your comment about um, about doing fewer procedures in this kind of direct world uh, makes makes a lot of sense. Actually, I I, I have a. I have a friend who uh, who's had several back surgeries, you know, on, on his vertebrae, and um, and and uh, he ultimately actually ended up going to Germany to get a procedure that that the FDA didn't approve here, but but was was clearly a, a effective procedure, um, just for whatever reason the politics had not caught up with it. I don't know if they do the procedure here uh, or not yet, but um, it cost him like forty grand, you know, out of pocket to to. F- fly out to Germany and get this procedure. Um, but I, I had read, have you, have you read the book? I actually uh, coincidentally have it sitting here on my desk cause I pulled it out the other day, but have you read the, this risky medicine book? Have you seen I'm this not. before? It's, it's a, it's a pretty phenomenal book. It's uh, Robert Arnowitz and I believe his wife is also a physician. Um, but I want to say that it was in this book that I read about, um, well, he talks about the Framington heart, uh, study and, and different, you know, different things, um, cancer, you know, we talked about like screenings. There was a, there was a period there where like the screenings were so like breast screenings were so mar- heavily marketed and, and pushed. And there was actually a phase of time where your likelihood of death or, or bad outcomes was higher, uh, in people who were getting screened than people who weren't because of the number of, there was just like a high incidence of false positives um, and that led to unnecessary treatments and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I want to say that it was this book that talked about, and tell me if this sounds totally crazy, but I want to, or maybe it was either this book or I, I referenced Nassim Taleb earlier that it might've been something I read in his book, but this idea that, that there are certain, even like, you know, musculoskeletal things like, like neck pain or, or back, back things where it's really painful. 
a surgeon, you go to a surgeon, they're going to want to do something. They're going to want to intervene. But there's a lot of times where your body actually has some mechanisms for healing itself, you know, um, you know, creating some space through secre- I want to say it was like secretion of acid or something. Does that, does that sound like anything that, that, uh, you've heard before? Am I totally, I, I feel like they referenced, uh, studies in the, in the book that I'm, that I'm recalling, but does, does that, uh, any of that resonate with you at all? You're talking for specifically spine stuff or just any sort of thing? Yeah. I want to say it was specifically spine stuff that, that there are, that like you can have, friction between between you know between vertebrae that if you leave it untreated um like the outcomes actually the long-term outcomes are actually better if you leave a lot of these things untreated because the surgeries end up being effective temporarily and then you end up having to go back and get them fixed a bunch of times where if you don't you end up figuring out how to live with it or adapt yeah does that does that yeah i mean i think there's some truth to that in the sense of spine surgery um yeah. So spine surgery is really good for arm or leg pain, right? So if you have a nerve that's okay. being pinched in your neck and you've done everything, you've tried therapy and you waited months and this thing is just shooting yeah. right down your arm, the surgery can reliably take pressure off that nerve and most people get tremendous amount of relief and improvement in the quality of life. Same thing with back pain. The neck pain, you go through less muscle because you go through the front, so you're not really going through any muscle most of the time, so it's a pretty quick okay. recovery. Back pain, you got to go through a lot of muscle in the back. So back surgery done for leg pain usually does pretty well or like real instability. Um, but just surgery for back pain itself is really not a good idea. You're rolling the dice 50%, whether it gets better or worse, which means nobody knows. So and actually the first line, even with a large herniated disc, the first line of rec- uh, treatment they recommend is just activities, just being active and hmm. your body usually resorbs at 90% of the time. So I think your body does have really good mechanisms to heal itself, but that being said, there are times and sometimes indications where somebody really does benefit significantly from these surgeries. Sure. So that's kind of my role of is, is, is even if I'm not the one doing the surgery, almost as a second opinion, or sometimes mm-hmm. I do them sometimes, you know, so maybe a surgery, I don't do spine surgeries, but I can certainly tell somebody yeah. um, if they would benefit from it or to avoid it at all costs. Right. Uh, right. So, well, I, I hate this feeling. Um, uh, and this happened to us recently where, where one of my son's, you know, uh, injured a toe and we went to a, we went to an orthopedic surgeon and he recommended we do surgery on it. Um, he had broken a bone. There was a chunk of bone that was broken off. And, uh, you know, I, like I, I am like 90% sure that that's probably the right thing, but there's this feeling that you have knowing sort of the system that, that we're operating in that, that there's an incentive for that, that doc to recommend the surgery. Um, and, and, and if it's a 50, 50, they're going to err on the side of recommending it. And that's not a great feeling, you know, as a patient to feel like we're doing this big, we're spending all this money, we're doing this big procedure. Um, and I'm not, I've got a little bit of skepticism that, that my physician's motives are aligned with my, care goals, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen it. I'll just give you some examples. Six examples I find are better than statistics. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, the hospital looks at who's the most productive doctor, not who's the best doctor, who's the most productive, meaning who does the most stuff. So if you go to the guy who does a lot of stuff, he's going to want to do stuff on you. Yeah. Sometimes indicated, right? sometimes maybe not. 
In my case, yeah. I saw, I'll give you two examples of exactly what you're saying, which is really, which is a real thing and true. Um, there was a girl, sounded like, you know, this is in part of my training at one point, um, where it looked like, uh, she sounded like she dislocated her shoulder. So a girl who dislocates her shoulder in her early 20s is a good indication to do an anterior labral repair. Um, so they don't sure. dislocate it again. So the physical exam matched up. Everything matched up. So I was like, okay. So I guess we'll order an MRI to make sure that the labral tear is there. He goes, no, I don't think we need one. I say, okay. You know, I'm hmm. not the attending at that time. What, you yeah. Know, whatever. And then so the surgery comes. He does it. gets in the shoulder. And there's no labral tear. So... I said, well, what are we going to do? He's like, oh, we'll just tighten her up a little bit. And like, you know, something, and then she has to do physical therapy anyways. This is something that could have been solved by physical therapy in the first place. But from his standpoint, he gets paid, the hospital gets the bill, everybody's happy. You know, that's what you're talking about. And that's real. And yeah. Another example, a lady, uh, same doc, she had a mallet finger injury, which is where you break the tendon on the tip of your finger. Usually, oh, yeah. if the, I've got one of those, you've got one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people get them, um, and yeah. I treat them. Unless the finger is the, the joint is out of place, which most of the time it's not, you can treat it with a splint. You got to wear the splint all the time for about six to eight weeks, otherwise it'll fall apart. Huh. But anyways, he says we could do surgery on it, and what she hears is, "Oh, I need surgery on it." So we do the surgery, we put a pin in her finger, and guess what? They do another surgery, take the pin out, something that could have been taken care of with a splint, which costs you know Crazy. less than a dollar probably. Um, but that surgeon was rewarded for that. So, I mean, that's the thing you're talking about. And I, I would say that not every doc is like that. Surgeon is like that. But you, I guess you just don't know. Some really will only try right. to do the right thing. But the hospital certainly, um, you know, gives praise to the doc who's continuously doing lots of stuff and who operates on everybody, even if that's not the right totally. thing to do. And granted, there are times when it totally. certainly is, right? Like if you break your femur, sure. I don't care what you say. Ninety-nine percent of the time, you really should get that surgery, and you should get it immediately. Um, you know, right. so in my role, since I'm not super incentivized like that, you know, my my, my yeah. practice is profitable without doing any surgery. Um, if, yeah. if it had to be, um, I really only yeah. recommend it if I think it's absolutely necessary, or like I said, selective, and they want to do it, and I think it's reasonable. But yeah, yeah, in system, you know, if you're not operated as a surgeon, you're going to get pushed out, even if you're really really good. Yeah. So what about, um, you know, if, if you're an employer and you're funding your own health plan, you know, um, uh, because you're big enough and, and you've got the ability to do that, um, I would think that if, I, if I'm that employer, I, a, a surgeon like you would be just incredibly valuable. You know, the, the amount of unnecessary, super expensive procedures um, that could be avoided. Um, do, do you see that as a, as a, as a potential market, uh, buyer, you know, for your, for your practice? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been working towards that, but as you know, in the employer space, everything moves slow as dirt. So, um, yeah. I think that because honestly, direct primary care docs or family medicine trained, they have some idea, but when you start getting into these nuances, they're not trained to know when somebody definitely needs surgery or what that surgery would entail or how long they'd be off work or yeah. like what's going to be done. So I think acting as a second opinion in that would be incredibly useful for musculoskeletal cost containment instead of the primary care doc saying, well, I've done a shot. I've tried therapy. It's not getting better. I'm sending you to the surgeon. Surgeon gets the patient said, hey, you failed physical therapy. You failed the shot. The only thing left is surgery. Like I think if I can get in yeah. before that space, that is yeah. – my gut feeling is that's the best role for a direct orthopedic surgeon. 
Um, I know at least for me, instead of just, Hey, I'm the carpenter, just send me all your, you know, things that need to be cut on. And that's not what I do. That's not where I think most of my value is lies in simply just doing procedures. um, Have you looked into workers comp? Have you looked into that world? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, at one point I was workers comp accredited, but I let it lapse. I'm not a huge fan of doing workers comp. It's pretty heavily regulated, um, for better or for worse. So it's not really an area that I want to work space that I want to work in because I just don't like being confined by a thousand regulations. Um, me personally, some people are okay with it. Uh, workers comp pays better than any other insurance because it has to, otherwise nobody would see workers comp. Um, because (laughs) also if you want to talk about perverse incentives, not saying all workers comp, but there's some that, you know, they get an injury, they're getting paid while not working. And then I think, the statistic mm. is if they haven't gone back to work in a year, their probability of returning is exactly like 0% or something crazy like wow. that. So, you know, wow. there's, 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 there's a misaligned percent incentives in there as well. And I think that's why no it's doubt. a hard patient space to work in because you'll operate on people and they do treatment and they just won't get better statistically speaking. Yeah. It's, it's funny how, how messy and complicated and, and all these weird niche, you know, industries emerge when you've got, when you've got regulation and, and like, you know, I, I run a company that's, that's small, you know, we're like less than 20 employees. If, if we, but if we ever cross the threshold to like 50 employees, we start to trigger a lot of different regulations and a lot of different you know requirements, especially around insurance. And, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, you, I just ran a, a, a family business workshop, uh, here in, in my hometown here, Huntsville, Alabama, um, just trying to encourage and inspire local, you know, friends of mine to quit their jobs and start businesses. It's this, this town is like you, the big, the big employer really is government. It's, it's a lot of defense contractors. And, and so it's like all these brilliant engineers and astrophysicists and, and people that are like incredibly creative and smart, but they're all working in this, this, uh, this big government sort of space. And, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's just like this constant onslaught of, of, uh, regulations and of different political junk. That's like, why is this, why am I having to deal with this? You know, can't I just be an engineer or scientist or whatever it is you do, you know? So Yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts on the, the insurance, uh, alternatives, like the, the medical cost sharing, uh, groups out there? So from there's a lot of them now, it seems like that's emerged. Yeah. So for myself, I use DPC and I use a cost, a medic, MediShare, um, cool. medical sharing uh, for my, myself and my family. I think they can be pretty good. Um, you just, they're not regulated. Yeah. So you have to be careful which one you choose. Make sure you go with a reputable mm-hmm. one that's legitimate. Um, you know, because yeah. they're outside of regulation, but, I believe that it makes you a responsible purchaser of health care, meaning that you yeah. need to, you're functionally uninsured to these hospital systems and you need to go out and you need to tell them and you need to get cash negotiations and then you can submit. And, but, you know, they work well. I mean, we had a baby. I negotiated yeah. cash for everything, right? Like uh, the, the anesthesia, the hospital, the OB-GYN, cash, cash, cash. And I think it came out total about 12 grand with all my negotiations and I got all of that money back, um, all 100% of it, because I had the health share. Now I pay for a more expensive health share that covers that stuff. Um, but, you know, I had to float all those bills. Wow. So, I mean, it's not like I could just sit there and here's yeah. my card. 
But I think they right, can be right, good. Right. I, I mean, the only caveat is if, let's say, you have a lot of pre-existing conditions or you're very unhealthy, sure. you may be better yeah. served by an Obamacare plan um, that that does not prevent pre-existing conditions. But you know, especially yeah. if you can yeah. get the subsidy, that I mean, even those regular insurance, if you're really utilizing it that much, it may be better. But for most people that are healthy and don't have any medical problems, I think it's less money than insurance and it's better. And you don't have any networks. You can go wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. I think it's awesome. And and that's the other side of this equation that we haven't really talked a lot about. But, but, you know, we're talking about a physician who's independent and who's informed and who's um, operating, um, you know, using their own – their own judgment and, and good sense and, uh, and convictions, ethics, et cetera. Uh, but, but you add into that equation, uh, patients who are informed and, uh, and doing the same kind of thing. And, and you, you, you said it earlier, we're not, we're not going to take on this current system head on and, 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 and beat them at their own game. We're going to have to, I think, uh, and, and it sounds like you probably agree with me here. We're, we're going to have to, to build our own thing. You know, we're gonna have to build our own system. Uh, we're gonna have to go out and just march, you know, just, just vote with our dollars, um, for something different. Um, I think that's, that's going to be at some point enough people are going to kind of unplug from the matrix that they're going to have to pay attention and do something about it. Um, but, but I think we got a, a really long way to go before, before that day ever comes. Yeah. And, uh, we're also in a world, we exist where they don't exist, right? So like, you know, cash pay, you know, the people that are, aren't yeah. trying to, you know, utilize all this stuff. So yeah, you can't just, you can't fix the system as it exists. You'll never be able to do it successfully. Not to say, I mean, you can yeah. try to do it on the legislative end. I think it's going to be long, expensive battles with minimal sure. gain. Although there's a few areas that, you know, like letting people use HSAs for DPC that like would be good. Um yeah. But yeah, I think the the way to do it is just disruption by creating just a better separate system that they're not really yeah. involved in. Because like what I've done and what right. other what DPC docs have done is we've removed hospitals, removed insurance systems. They're no longer part of the equation with the most medical care, at least the routine stuff. Yep. Granted, when you have a catastrophic stuff, it's a different story. But, you know, the system right. is not a perfect – the new system isn't a perfect solution. We're building it. So eventually right. we can get to the more complicated things. We just don't have the ability to do that really at the moment. And that's right. certainly why you need some sort of catastrophic um, coverage yeah. of some sort just to prevent yourself right. from going bankrupt. You know, God forbid you get in a bad accident or you have cancer or something. I was when I was talking to uh, to Keith Smith out in Oklahoma, he he mentioned well two stories that I think are relevant to what we're talking about here with just like changing legislation, doing it kind of more from a grassroots standpoint. He he. Uh, there was one instance early on in his practice where um, where one of the hospital systems kind of weaponized the state medical board uh, to come after him and kind of shut him down and, and demand that he turn over records of some sort. And he just said, no, and you'll be hearing from my attorney. Um, we don't take any federal money. HIPAA doesn't apply to us. We don't have to hand you over anything. Um, and uh, and eventually, you know, ju- Judge uh, filed an injunction, you know, told him basically, told the, the, the medical board to cease and desist on their, uh, what they were, uh, asking for. And then, and then ultimately, uh, the medical board ended up writing him a letter apologizing and basically saying we had no grounds for what we were doing, uh, when we were telling you to stop and shut down and hand over information. We had, we had no legitimate grounds. We're sorry. 
Um, he's actually got that letter framed, um, in his office. <laughs> um, but the, Right, which is cool. Yeah, better uh, than a board certification. Yeah, I would frame that yeah. too. That's better than a board certification, <laughs> an apology letter. You'll never get those. Right. That's worth more than right. the waste weight in gold. Um, right. But, but yeah, you, you know, the system, if it starts seeing perturbations to it, is going to start attacking yeah. you. I would just caution a sure. lot of doctors where we are. So just a lot of docs say, like, I'm just going to lawyer up and just blast away here. But you'll end up bankrupting yourself unless you can get a lawyer to take mm-hmm. it on contingency. So I would say you only use totally. the legal stuff if it's absolutely, absolutely yeah. necessary to avoid bankrupting yourself. Because sometimes they'll, they'll think yeah. that just by forcing you in these legal battles, they'll ruin your business that way, which certainly can happen. Right. Um, so no, totally. It's just a game that they play. So just uh, docs will be like, totally. oh, I'm going to fight this. But just make sure that that's the right move and you're not going to just yeah, spend all your money a fighting a, a battle that you can't win and then you're out of business. Because that, totally. that, that meets their goals. Well, he, the, the other story, I think you're totally right about that. Um, the other story he shared that I thought was great was, was actually during COVID when, uh, he, he's in Oklahoma and they had, um, you know, the state or I, I guess the state had pushed out a, you know, kind of, uh, only elective procedures kind of thing, um, or, or, or n- not elective procedures, only, only non-elective procedures. Right. Um, and, uh, and only essential procedures, I guess, life-saving procedures, whatever. Um, and of course, uh, Keith uh, ignored <laughs> what they were what they were uh, uh, requiring and and did what he thought was right. And I think they had some Karens like patrolling their parking lots and and calling it in and reporting like, hey, these guys are still open, they're still doing procedures, and um, and. Eventually, the governor, I believe, the governor of uh, Oklahoma called him and said, hey, uh, I should have called you before I made that, you know, agreed with that sort of edict that 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 everyone needed to shut down anything but essential surgeries. He said, how should I have thought about that? Um, and and Keith's response was put it in the doctor's hands. You know, the doctor's are trying to do what's best for their patients and they'll, they'll make the decision about which surgeries are necessary and which ones aren't. And that's where, that's where you should leave it. And the governor was like, Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, of course it should be the doctors who make those decisions. Um, so anyway, they, they ended up in Oklahoma rolling back that, that, um, restriction. But again, it, it, it all, that happened because of a guy, you know, doing his own thing as you are, um, building his own thing and, and over 20 plus years, um, building up enough, you know, capital, um, you know, kind of relational political capital to actually be able to, to have the governor calling him. Right. That takes time and that takes resources. So not everybody has the resources totally. to do that. So for most, all of other us, totally. I'd recommend just staying off the radar as best you can and avoiding, yeah. avoiding these yeah. massive legal battles. Uh, lawyers will always take it. They'll be happy to take all of their money that oh, yeah. you have. Um, but that's just that's not right. a smart way to spend it. Uh, I've seen it before. That's right. Um, totally. Unless you can get contingency. No, if you can get a contingency lawyer, then yeah. okay. Go for but it. But they only, yeah. only take a yeah. case if they think you can win. So maybe that's a good rule of thumb anyways. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I'm uh, I'm really fascinated, uh, Dr. Paul, by what you're doing. I, and I think what you're doing is um, – is admirable on a lot of different levels. I mean, I, I think the practice of medicine is, is, is a calling and it's, and it's not a, 
it's not an easy one. It's one that I think we should all, um, as a society be, be thankful for and appreciative of and, and should honor. Um, but I think, uh, the fact that you are, you have, you are, um, going out and, and trying to build something, um, something new and something different and, and doing the, the, the brutal hard work of, of, you know, disruption and, and, um, discovering a new way. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really a service I think to, to, uh, to our, to society, frankly. And, and I think the lessons you're learning, the lessons that you're sharing on your journey with other physicians, um, are going to bear fruit, um, for a lot of people and, and hopefully are going to result in, in, uh, in some, some major changes, um, and more practices, more, more physicians like you were out there, um, uh, doing what you're doing. So, so I'm really, really, uh, thankful to, to, to get to know you and get to hear about your story. What, you know, um, just as we kind of wrap up here, I mean, what, what, um, what would be your parting thoughts to let's maybe, um, let's maybe focus this because we're, we're, this is a, this is a podcast that's really aimed at physicians. What would be your parting thoughts here to a physician who's maybe where you were you know, before you started your practice and thinking, you know, I, I don't know that this is what I signed up for. I don't know that this is what I want to be doing with my, with my career. What, what would your encouragement advice be to them? My advice would be that, you don't have to do it the way you're currently doing it and how you want to do it is possible. And other people have done it and you can do it too, but you have to take the risk and do it. It's, it's less of a ready. It's more of a ready fire aim mentality yeah. where you kind of just yeah. have to go and do it and take risk and you could fail and you can certainly fail. Yep. But if you don't, and a lot of people haven't, you'll end up being in a much better position than you, you ever thought. So you say I'm doing all this hard work to pioneer and everything, and I, I guess I am. But to me, it's so much easier than working at a hospital. So <laughs> it feels a lot easier yeah. than what the alternative would be, which is just grinding away in some hospital, doing as many yeah. surgeries and being unhappy and not getting to spend any time with my family. So it's possible. But like you have to – there's a certain activation energy you need and like you just have to yeah, do it sure. ready, fire, aim, just do it. If if not, then you'll never do it and you'll be stuck where you are forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good advice. I, uh, I, I always think about with, with respect to that particular advice. Um, I think I read it in, um, in the four hour work week. Uh, um, I don't know why my brain, Tim Ferriss's mm -hmm. book, I think he talks about how we fear, we always fear the unknown, you know, more than the known. And, um, and e e even if you're, what you know is terrible, it's like the devil, you know, um, is better than the devil you don't. And, um, and an exercise that he, he, um, encouraged, I believe in that book is, is just to make the unknown known, like actually sit down and think through logically the worst case scenario, like actually walk that out. And I, and I think fortunately for most Americans, especially most physicians in America, I don't think the worst case scenario is so bad that, that you wouldn't be able to bounce back and survive and take care of yourself and your family. You know, I mean, it, it may be hard. It may be difficult. It may be disappointing. It may feel like a waste of time, but, but I, but I think if you actually do the, just walk it out. Like what's the absolute worst thing that could happen here? 
Um, I, I think a lot of times you're surprised by how, when you actually make it known, uh, do that, that legwork of, of thinking through that it's actually not as bad as it's not all that bad. It's like something that you could probably live with, you know? Yeah. I mean, in my personal instance, I lived in my in-laws basement for almost two years and it was great. Yeah. And now I don't live there yeah. anymore. Uh, you know, so like, yeah, yeah, you know, totally. So it's fine. I mean, that's not that bad an outcome, right? No. I mean, that's, it's like, yeah, that versus, you know, getting further and further down this road into this, this, uh, kind of getting stuck in the system that you, that you don't believe in. So yeah. that's great. Yeah, you'll never get out of the abyss if you don't get out of the abyss. That's awesome. Well, if people want to follow you, you you've got a book. Um, um, uh, is that something, uh, so you got into medical school now, what, is that something you encourage people to check out? Yeah. I mean, only if you're a medical student, you've got in, I kind of wrote that while I was in yeah. medical school, but if you want to kind of follow me, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. It's Daniel Paul MD, East okay. Orthopedics. Website's easyorthopedics.com, and then I have a YouTube channel called Beyond the Scalpel, which is more of sort of informational orthopedic stuff. So that's kind of where I exist these days online. Okay. Daniel Paul, that's that's Paul with two Paul's L's. Paul with two L's, yeah. Um, and so is LinkedIn kind of your main spot for, for uh, like, are you big on Twitter, bigger on Twitter, bigger on LinkedIn, bigger on Facebook? Like, what's your main main spot? Yeah, so, I mean, with social media, they all come in different flavors. you got to find the flavors that are right for you. You can't do all of them. So um, did Twitter for a bit. That was terrible. That's I highly recommend not doing that. Extremely toxic platform um so for me it's youtube and and linkedin we have a very crappy facebook page never updated it just exists but if you're looking for like the content or you know my thoughts and things linkedin is for most of that and then i usually publish once a day and then youtube once a week and then a blog post on my website about once a month well uh check check him out linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash uh easy orthopedics or just search for daniel paul with two l's md Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Paul. And, and I will be, uh, I just followed you on LinkedIn and, uh, and I'm, I'm eager to, to follow your progress and, and would love to, to stay in touch and hear updates about how things are going. Perfect. Well, thanks Lars. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right, man. Cheers. You have just listened to Branch Out, a podcast by Sycamore hosted by me, Larson Hicks. Please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next one. 